Hello and welcome back to the program. My name is Michael Finney. Today I am joined by Daniel Chiraki. Would you like to say hello for the folks at home? Hello to all of the folks at home. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, how we might know you, uh, and how you got there? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so, like I said, my name is Daniel Chiraki, and I have been working on a satirical podcast uh, in the style of old-time radio, specifically about the Chicago World Fair of 1893 and all of the H.H. H. Holmes pandemonium that has been uh, you know, associated with all of that. It's pretty uh, inextricable from it, in my opinion. But uh, if you, you may know me, actually, because I was able to give this podcast a little bit of a plug uh, during my Jeopardy run. I was a contestant on Jeopardy um, this, that aired this past spring, this past April. And, um, I got to spend two episodes, uh, you know, on that set and just, uh, you know, hopefully applying whatever knowledge of history that I could muster and, um, you know, hopefully, you know, not embarrassing myself. So I, I think I at least achieved that much. And, uh, <laughs> so yeah, for, so ever since then I've been, uh, working really hard on this podcast and really pleased with it so far. So two days on Jeopardy implies you won a day, right? That is true. Yeah. Unless, unless they really pitied me so hard that they, you know, invited me back the very next day, but no, um, they, uh, I, I did win, uh, the first, I did win the first game that I was on and, uh, just an absolutely nerve wracking experience in all the best ways, but still very, just kind of surreal for me. Um, and yeah, so I, I was lucky enough to do that. Yeah, it's awesome. Tell us about the experience. What was being on set like? What was competing like? Um, and for me personally, as a Jeopardy fan, I'd like to know some about the preparation in advance. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, first, the, the experience, there's just absolutely nothing like it. Um, not even just the filming and just being on the Alex Trebek stage. Like, I probably, like, half blacked out during that game. It just went by so fast and it was just so intense and you are so focused during that time. But, you know, it's like a year long process, I would say for the auditions. You know, I, I started actually the audition process in, I want to say March of 2022. And I, uh, my episode aired April 2023. So that that gives you an idea of what kind of timeline you're looking at. They do three different phases of testing. And, uh, you know, you only have something like eight seconds to answer each test. And I think you got to get, this isn't uh, official, but I think anecdotally of the 50 questions they ask you each test, I think you got to get around like 35, 40 of them right. So whatever it was, I, I, I made it through. <laughs> so, um, but you know, once I got there, like once I was in LA, um, truthfully, uh, you know, all of the, the pressure kind of dwindled at that point. Like I already did the hard part. This, this is the part that's fun. I like, uh, I like to perform. I like to be on stage. And one thing that I really, uh, was not expecting to experience, but, um, but I, you know, came away from it, you know, really having it stick out to me was just, you know, it's such a ridiculous process, that whole preparation. So when you go there and you're backstage uh, doing the whole orientation of the studio and just how we're going to do things, I'm with 11 other contestants. And these are also like the first 11 people I've really met who 
understand what I've been doing for the past year or so. So it was nice to be able to kind of uh, talk about that preparation and to talk about um, just the experience of getting here and, um, you know, however bumpy the ride may have been or however smooth the ride may have been. Um, so that was just kind of a unique bonding experience. Everyone there was just... I mean, the contestants were great. They were just super genial and gracious. And, you know, everybody who works on that Jeopardy staff just did such a good job of getting us ready, uh, making sure it wasn't too nerve wracking for once the the games really began. So, so yeah, that was just an amazing opportunity. And I'm, I'm really glad that, that everyone there just really maximized that experience for me. Last Jeopardy question, and then I have a follow-up to this that I want to address. Please, for by all means. How much of a lead-in in regards to topics that are going to be on the show do you have? You don't have a clue. Really? They don't give you anything about that. Nope, not at all. The best, uh, I'd say the best guess you have is just, or the best, I think, clues you get about the clues themselves is just through from watching the show. Um, I, I watch a lot of Jeopardy, especially when I was studying. Um, once I knew that I was going to be on the show, um, you know, I watched all the reruns of the, you know, I DVR'd every episode from recent seasons and they, yeah, they don't tell you, they don't give you anything, but they do tend to, I, I wouldn't say they recycle questions, but they do like, they do have their favorite topics, their favorite historical figures, um, geographical destinations, things like that. So you do kind of um, get an idea of where they're going sometimes, but at the same time, the writers, you know, on Jeopardy, the people who do the clues, they're really smart. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> so they are going to know. No way. Yeah, I know. Right. But like, so they're going to understand that they fall into these patterns and maybe completely get you, uh, you know, on an episode where, you know, it looks like they could be asking about like Lord Byron, but instead it's, you know, Alfred Tennyson or something like that. I don't know. Brit lit was kind of the end of my existence when it came, <laughs> when it came to, uh, categories, but either way, yeah, it's um, like that is the best way to prepare, I think, is watching the show and, um, you know, just really trying to get a handle on all of their categories as much as possible. Let's change gears a little bit. I imagine being on Jeopardy is in a sense performative, but it sounds like you've got experience on the stage and perhaps in front of the camera. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I was a musician in a past life, I would say. Um, and, you know, growing up, I was always, you know, I, I always loved to act when I was growing up. I think from a very early age, um, that was never really daunting for me, getting up around people. I'm also the youngest of five kids. So I think any time that there was attention on me for any reason at all, I, I would relish it. So, um, so yeah, I, I think that's just something that I, you know, like could kind of play towards. It doesn't really phase me to kind of be under those lights. And, um, and yeah, so, so when I was, by the time I was on Jeopardy and everything, um, it really, I, I was able to kind of like let the studying and the preparation take over second nature. And, um, and, you know, like I, I get nervous, I do get nervous before going on stage for any reason, but once I'm there, uh, the nerves are pretty much gone. That's great. Let's talk about 
the real reason we're both here, right? All right, let's do that. <laughs> uh, no homes barred, right? That's it. Where did this come from? Why are you doing this? Oh man, I I would say it probably came from the same place, um, you know, that a lot of people going on these deep dives, you know, wh- wherever they get it from. I I think it starts with like a little spark of interest, and you just keep reading into it and keep reading into it until. Um, you know, you realize, Hey, I've got an obsession slash hobby that I, that I now have, um, like just a new thing to really just a new rabbit hole to really go completely down. Um, this, uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, you know, I, I kind of learned about homes from various true crime, um, you know, podcasts and documentaries and things like that. But I, but I didn't really, but what really drew me to his story was not that he was just like kind of a, like a, like a Ted Bundy type or any of like the mo- the more modern like serial killers. What, what fascinated uh, uh, me about him was not just the sheer like grisliness and the, just the absolute abject cruelty that he imposed on people. It was just, it was the fact that like, he was a process and a, and a, um, product killer at the same time where like everything that he did was, it was all about the grift. Like it was, you know, like he, he didn't hate the fact that he needed to murder somebody to get his, uh, you know, like just enemies out of the picture for sure. But he, um, but he really kind of like, he preyed on a lot of people who just happened to be in his way. And I thought that yeah. that was like kind of uh, kind of fascinating from like what you hear about a lot of the serial killers nowadays. And I think just a lot of those themes, just about how he was somebody who was just absolutely he was just this completely unchecked entrepreneur for that time, like during like the whole you know reconstruction of America yeah. and the Industrial Revolution being in full swing. So like. I don't know. Like, it was pretty fascinating to me that, like, you know, we glorify that era as a time of prosperity and innovation. But there's this dude out there who is completely bastardizing every possible um, just any any um, positive theme that could be gleaned from that revolution. Just he is completely um, taking advantage of it, exploiting it. Exactly. Exactly. Just exploiting it. And there was absolutely zero limit to what this man would do to to get ahead there was nothing there was no person that he wouldn't exploit he was an absolute sociopath and a terror but um what actually but again like what what really sort of fascinated me about this story was just like honestly there there's a lot of themes that i think parallel uh you know just kind of the times we're going through today compared to what he was what the things that he was valuing back then, specifically just the getting ahead at any cost. Where did the initial spark for creating the podcast series begin? Where in this process of developing the obsession did it begin to transmute itself into this uh, series that, that you have? That is a good question. I, I'm not sure I remember the exact... Um, topic about the World's Fair that struck me first, but I began kind of writing it as a script, um, not really sure what the medium was yet, 
um, and just very rough. But like, I think a lot of the things about that time were just so um, hastily done. Just all of the planning of the fair was completely preventable. Like, like I'm sorry, the uh, sloppiness of the planning was completely preventable. And um, instead, it just kind of lent itself to having this fair that needed to pretty much be close to ready in about a five-month span of building. Um, you know, like the the planners didn't really have much of a chance to succeed, but it's it's not like they were helping their cause anyway. <laughs> so, so just a lot of, um, I don't know, just something like, I don't know, like why was there a, you know, a giant bobsled track in the middle of summer in Chicago built, you know, like... <laughs> the one that was built wound up derailing and killing like three people. So I'm just, again, that just seems like a thing that you could have seen from a mile away. I wanted to know what the conversation was that approved that. I start writing that like kind of in like a, this pseudo conversation of like a role of planners and things like that, just to try to make sense of it. And um, that is kind of how it began. The script, the script sort of began like that. And the reason I wanted to do a podcast in particular, truthfully, is because I had the means to do it. Um, like, yeah, I could I could have written a TV pilot. I could have written like a movie script or something like that. But that is so out of my control in terms of production. Um, I was able to pool my resources uh, for po- for podcasting. I have a lot of I, I happen to know a pretty good network of uh, voice actors. I happen to know a good network of audio engineers. And um, a podcast is something that we can throw out there ourselves without needing approval of a studio. It's something that we can do independently and have creative control over it. And I think, yeah. And so like just kind of in my whole, uh, you know, the scope of my career creating things, I really just wanted something that you could control and, and put out, you know, without having to rely on a a third party to really uh, make it happen for you. Obviously I'm, I'm on board with all of that line of thinking. I do most of those same things. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, here we are, uh, you know, recording a podcast episode together. Yes, we are. And it, no restrictions. (laughs) Yeah. And it doesn't have, hopefully it's not going to have to go through like a, just a, a wall of editors or censors or people like that in order to uh, have this come to light. We are doing it right now. <laughs> That's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. Tell us maybe a little bit about the arc of the series. Uh, you know, obviously this is a historical thing. We kind of know how it went. Sure. But uh, in the context of your story and the particulars and and, and how you manufacture that experience you don't have to give anything away and you know you don't have to hit the punchline in regards to homes uh but yeah anything that you want to elaborate on or folks you would like to address anything you know uh this is that chance oh yeah you know i think what i really with Holmes, what i didn't want to do was just you know his big sort of claim to fame and it's not to say that I didn't incorporate this because you have to, is he built a literal murder castle um, just in in Englewood, you know, like right by the World Fair, pretty much just to uh, 
you know, like it was a hub for his businesses and the, um, a lot of the sensationalized sort of documentaries that we see nowadays kind of, um, you know, like they, they sort of have maybe a, um, just maybe a little imbalanced, uh, emphasis, I would say on the fact that he had this, you know, house of horror, um, it's obviously a big part of the story and it needs to be there, but there were just so many, like it wasn't just as simple as this boogeyman setting up shop. Um, but that this is a elaborate story where he was able to get away with all sorts of, you know, atrocities, but at the same time, he had this persona about him that was incredibly convincing to the public where he could make people trust him. He had this, um, just this air about him who, where like he could make you feel like you were the only person in the world when he was talking to you. And that's just what sociopaths do. They manipulate for their own personal gain without any care in the world of who they're stepping on to get there. So not only that, I think just the planning of the world fair, how um, overrun Chicago was by so much chaos getting this thing ready. And keep in mind, this is a city that 20 years prior to that fair was, you know, burned down by the Chicago fire. So there is a lot that needs to be um, that needs to happen for this fair to go without a hitch. And because of that, and you also keep in mind that, you know, the the um, like municipal police forces just were not really a thing because they were initially, you know, the only reason that they were even um, established in the first place was because of slavery and trying to keep that in check. But then after slavery was, you know, abolished, they, they, or reformed rather, they, um, you know, they, they kind of didn't have a lot to do. Crime and justice was at the mercy of a lot of private investigators. So even if people wanted to, you know, point a finger at Holmes with everything that was going on, no one was there to hold him accountable. And I think in a city where there was less happening and less going on as, you know, we actually do learn, um, you know, when he, when he traveled to Missouri, he got arrested there once when he, uh, when right before he got caught for all of the murders in Chicago, he was wanted by Texas for, I think, for stealing horses, actually. Hmm. Classic. Which, um, from my understanding, uh, at the time was punishable by death. So, um, so yeah, like he was he was getting in trouble all over the place. But for for whatever reason, the the uh, just the cover of the World Fair kind of let him operate in plain sight in Chicago, which I just thought was an absolutely like I got to focus on this story somehow. I've got to I've got to bring this to light and I've got to, um, you know, not, and I've got to really examine just what are the parts of, you know, the human condition that enabled all of this. Definitely. And I think that there's a an interesting point that you're kind of dialing into in regards to investigation and crime and, um, you know, the the nature of private police forces um, mm-hmm. at that point in time and then kind of the development of the Pinkertons. Um, yes. You know, and it, I, I got to mention Frank Geyer, uh, who ends oh, up, yeah. you know, running all this stuff down. So mm-hmm. that to me, you know, you know, for me as a person who is equally as obsessed with the Columbian Exposition, um, you know, the 
it is really like this doorstep to the 20th century. You know what I mean? It, sure. it, it starts right there for me because of all of the industrial products, all the commercial stuff, um, the, uh, the technology, um, but then also this, this cultural element that emerges. And I think it's really hard to delineate uh, somebody like a Frank Geyer into uh, the larger context of another famous homes that we have Sherlock um, and how popular he was coming up and how that basically establishes, um, you know, a whole new theme of policing and detection and all kinds of surveillance and stuff like that through the 20th century as well. Um, you know, oh yeah. And, and like that, you know, that starts right there because all of a sudden you had this madman who is just, you know, uh, using his environment as cover to do heinous things in that way. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I love it, man. I'm, I'm very happy to, to be able to participate yeah. with you. Oh, oh, for sure. Yeah. And gl- thrilled to have you first of all. And secondly, just, um, with everything going on with Guy or what just made that so impressive is that, you know, of course it's 18, I think 95 is when he is, when he wound up catching Holmes. Mm. Um, you know, there's no DNA. There's like forensic science is like, um, at this point is like, if, unless you see a smoking gun in the hand of the murderer, there's not a whole lot that, you know, they can go off of at this point. But, um, the way that Geyer was able to, I mean, he basically just turned cold calling and like into, um, an investigation and just cold calling all of these hotels, just going on this hotel tour of the Midwest and comparing handwriting of pseudonyms, uh, that Holmes was using and Holmes would repeat pseudonyms. And so he discovered this pattern and was, you know, that, that was one of the, um, ways that he was able to get on Holmes's trail specifically. So just, but, but then there's also just the reality too. That's, you know, that, that's, that's kind of depressing as well is just the fact that, you know, Geyer, um, I, I can't remember the manner in which it happened, but I, but I know that his wife and daughter had died and he was kind of a lonely guy. He needed something to, uh, just kind of consume his life with, I would say he was looking for a purpose and, um, and this was that purpose for him. And he, you know, it only would have taken somebody, uh, you know, just completely voracious and dedicated in order to actually um, just get on Holmes's trail, uh, you know, let alone um, let alone actually bring him to justice. But um, but I also want to I also want to reiterate, too, that even though he was that even though the H.H. H. Holmes had was on the run with three children at the time who were not his um, after killing those children's fa- the, those children's father uh, shortly before um, the reason, the big reason that Holmes was even being pursued at this point is because of tax evasion and stiffing and stiffing his creditors, <laughs> let alone, you know, cause it's, yeah. it's, it's always that it's like how they got Al Capone, you know, for tax evasion, technically, despite all the things that he had done. Well, uh, Daniel, this has been a great conversation. I've learned a lot uh, about you and the project in general, which is fantastic. And, uh, you know, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you feel like you want to? 
Oh, plenty, I would say. Um, I would I would say that, um, you know, like I am just fascinated by the subject matter in general. But believe it or not, even though this story about this uh, child murderer and, uh, you know, uh, just absolute sociopath, this is a comedy <laughs> like this is a <laughs> historical fiction satire. Um, and I and it is honestly one of the most like batshit stories about any topic I have ever uncovered. And so, uh, you know, we had fun with the production. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of truth into what I am putting out there. Obviously I take some liberties there, but those should be pretty apparent to the listener. I'm not trying to like deceive anybody as far as, uh, you know, any of this goes, but, um, but actually something that when the entire series does come out, um, we don't want to harp on it too much, but we um, we are going to have like these little mini episodes um, that were, that are going to come out almost as like a commentary for the first. And basically, it's just going to be maybe eight minutes of disclaimers. Like, no, this really happened. Like, <laughs> they they really thought this was going to be a thing. Like, no, but really. Um, so so yeah. Um, it, it's just all I would say is. Uh, if you're checking out No Holmes Barred, buckle up because it is absolutely crazy, but a lot more of it is true than really should be. Right. Where can people find it? Wherever you get podcasts. Um, it can be found on Spotify. It can be on it's on um, Apple Music and just about any other place that you do that. But in, in case those uh, clients aren't working for some reason, always go on to noholmesbar.com. You can l- stream it and download it straight from there. And you can uh, also sign up for our mailing list as well. And uh, we'll be able to talk to and we'll be able to inform you about, you know, when the next episodes drop and other fun uh, No Holmes Bard related events that uh, we'll be able to announce uh, in the future. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you too. Anytime.